0: Good morning to you all. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. Thank you. Genesis chapter 2, and we are going to be uh, backing up a little bit and uh, starting at verse 23, and we will go through the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Father, this morning we are grateful that we can be together in this fashion with your word in front of us, with our brothers and sisters in Christ around us, with your spirit in our midst. And Father, even as we read these words about man in his innocency, when Adam and Eve were were naked, and they were not ashamed of that. They did not have uh, sin entering the picture to cloud their thoughts and their perceptions and their actions, and they were innocent. And we confess, Father, that we are not like that. We have our own guilt, that we have been misshapen in our thinking by our sin, we have been formed in our affections, in many ways, by our sin. We are tempted in ways that uh, that we wouldn't expect or that are all too powerful because of our own sin, the sinful world we live in. And Father, we confess this morning as we are entering into this passage and we are entering into uh, this Time with your word open in front of us that will conclude with the Lord's Supper. We confess that we are a needy people and we have our own sin that remains to be dealt with in many ways. And Father, we confess that to you. We also confess our joy in the fact that Jesus gave Himself. That he who lived righteously died vicariously to pay the penalty for our sin. And so we who indeed do have sin long ago and in the past and and in big ways and small ways and, and even present in our lives now, yet it is paid for if we are in Christ because of what Christ has done. And we rejoice in that. We rejoice that we have peace with you because of Jesus. And Father, even as we discuss these three verses today and talk about this topic of marriage and sexuality and male and female and, and our times, we will see that there are ways in which we've been more influenced by the world than, than we might have thought. We will see that, that we have fallen far from this ideal in our own practical lives. We will see our sin. And Father, we confess it to you, and we will as we go through this passage. And again, we are grateful for Jesus who did not have that sin, but died for us. So Father, in these next few minutes, as we have your word open, as we discuss this topic, I pray that you would help us to think well. pray that you would help us to focus on this topic and what you have in front of us. And even more than that, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts as we have your word here, as we sit together under the preaching and the teaching of your word. We pray that you would minister to us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. It may be that every generation feels uh, this way, but I certainly feel this way. It seems to me like... Marriage and family are under attack in our culture and in our day in ways that uh, it seems to have picked up pace from times before. I wasn't alive in the 60s. I wasn't around for uh, the sexual revolution and all connected with that, but it seems like we've even uh, upped our game as a culture and picked up speed in recent years, and it seems to be uh, getting faster and faster as time goes on. It seems like in our day, every piece and every part of biblical sexuality from its purpose to the very nature of gender itself is being redefined in our culture. And so it's against that backdrop. It's in this context of this day and age and the things that you're reading in the news now and that you see on social media and that you see going on in the the culture around us. It's against that dark backdrop that we read these verses. And my contention today is that our passage gives us three world-changing lessons for our day. I've called this message, Can Your Marriage Fix the World? And that's intended to be provocative. It's intended to raise that question uh, in our minds, in our context. And so as we work through these, I have just three basic points that I want to hit on and we'll develop them a little bit as we go. But first of all, I want to I want to point out that your marriage protects male and female. Your marriage protects male and female. The man said this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's a relationship between the two. There is an order between the two. Their origins are different, and we see that in this context. We saw back in chapter 1 that God created them male and female, and here we have a greater description of how that came about. That shouldn't be surprising to us, that there is a difference, there is a distinction between male and female, but in our day and age, that's a needful message. Because it seems like male and female can be interchangeable nowadays. It seems like you can swap back and forth from one to the other very simply. All it takes is maybe some medicine and perhaps a surgery. And you went from being male to being female or from being female to being male. And our passage here would argue differently. That they are distinct and they are intended to be distinct and they are not interchangeable with one another. It's, it's disturbing if you read the news. If you watch the news, it's disturbing to see the message being forced on our young children. The very children the same age that were dismissed just a few minutes ago to go to children's church. Children that age are receiving a message from the world that would say the two are interchangeable whether it takes place in our nation's uh, public schools and the, the things that are being pushed on a national level and in many cases on a local level, or whether it's uh, something you stream in your home, you invite it in, Disney, the message is this one. Before these children can understand what it means to be man or what it means to be woman, they're being encouraged to consider whether they might want to swap genders. Little kids. If you aren't familiar with the terms uh, CRT, or critical race theory and intersectionality, or with the term queer theory, you may want to educate yourself on what these things are. I know uh, perhaps you've looked into it just enough to realize it's distasteful to you, just enough to realize that uh, maybe you don't understand it and, and you could see how it could be problematic, but. But uh, you need to dig into it. This is the philosophy of our age. This is the context in which you will be called to honor Christ the Lord as holy and always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. This is the context in which you must give that answer. And so it's not okay to remain ignorant of it it's not okay to uh, stay away from it because it is distasteful to you you must look into it and you need to understand well, what these things are so uh, i'm not i'm not a sociologist and and i'm not uh, hugely educated on these topics but the essence of critical race theory and connected with that very closely is the idea of intersectionality is the notion that uh, races have related to one another in such a way that one Has been the oppressor over another. So one is the oppressor, one is the oppressed, and there's a negative relationship there. Well, of course, you and I can look at an oppressive situation and recognize the person who's doing the oppressing needs to stop. (laughs) They're doing wrong. And the person who is being oppressed is suffering a wrong against them. But you and I would look in each other's lives, or we would look in current situations, and we would we would want to correct those people who are doing the oppressing. And we want to help those people who are being oppressed. But CRT goes far beyond that. It looks into the past and says, at some point in the past, this race oppressed this race. And thus we have our existing climate now of oppressor, even though it may have happened a couple of hundred years ago. And oppressed, even though it may have happened a couple of hundred years ago, must be dealt with now. Even though you weren't there, I wasn't there, and no one uh, was there. And so it's this relationship of oppressor and oppressed. And that's how things relate to one another. That's how races relate to one another. But it goes beyond that with intersectionality. I know it's an odd thing to talk about on a Sunday morning, perhaps, but it shouldn't be. But intersectionality is is the idea that not only have there been oppressive and oppressed uh, uh, race relations, but there are also oppressor and oppressed uh, personal relationships. Uh, subcategories within society, within culture. For example, probably the, the clearest one in the concept of intersectionality is the males are the oppressors, men are oppressors, and women are the oppressed. And so what needs to happen in this context is that men need to be quiet for a while and listen to the women talk. Because they are the oppressed. They are the ones who have been uh, shut up. They have, are the ones who have been uh, contained and, and had wrongs done to them. So the oppressor needs to recognize the fact. By oppressor, I don't mean the person actively oppressing. But a male needs to recognize the fact that he should, he should uh, check his privilege. And he should, he should close his mouth and listen to women. Well, it goes far beyond that because, uh, you know, here we are Christians. And so we are naturally the oppressor category. And minority religions would be the oppressed category. And thus, Christians should probably be quiet and listen to the oppressed religious categories. That's the way intersectionality works. And, and of course, any, uh, any person in here, you may be a male and a Christian. Well, that's two strikes against you right there. Or you may be a female and a Christian. Well, the Christian is a strike against you. But the female actually gives you a little bit more credibility because you're a part of an oppressed class. And so uh, you can carry this out even farther and you can look at, uh, you know, uh, someone who is a homosexual would actually have another layer of, of having been oppressed or being oppressed above someone who is straight. And the person who has the most points of oppression has the biggest voice, is the one that we should listen to the most. Well, that's a, in, a, in a nutshell and, and uh, what, what critical race theory and intersectionality are about. But the way it comes down in practice when it's taught in schools to your third grader is that your third grader who is a little boy is white, for example. He's being told that he's, he's an oppressor because he's male, because he's white. So here's your third grade boy thinking he's the bad guy in the world and when he looks at his his best friend who may be hispanic well he's he's got to feel some kind of guilt or some kind of shame before his hispanic friend and particularly if his his hispanic friend is a female oh so we're training our young children and and it's of course not just young children it's all across the board that that you little boy who happens to be white you are doubly bad and you need to you need to check your privilege before your uh, peers who are different than you. That you need to close your mouth, you need to listen to them, you need to feel bad. So it's creating this, this sense of I'm, I'm bad by virtue of, of what I am. I happen to be male, that wasn't my decision, but that's a strike against me. I happen to be white, that wasn't my decision, but that was a strike against me. And so you, we're, we're training these children to think in these terms and their very identity is bad. It's wrong. Well, then comes queer theory, and queer theory comes along and says, "Okay, our sexuality is something that we can reverse. We can change. And and if you, little boy who who uh, is you know a third grade little boy who happens to be white and and uh, and a boy, and therefore he's got two strikes against him. He's doubly bad by virtue of his 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 being, who his identity. You can change your identity." You can decide to be a girl, perhaps. And when you do that, little boy, if, if you decide you're going to be a girl, guess what? You get some massive credit. You will now be doing something that people think is a really good and admirable thing. Because you are taking this brave step of trying to become a girl when you're a boy. And so, so you will find a place of acceptance. You will find a, a place where you, where, where you are no longer treated as bad, but now you're treated as, as something admirable. And you'll be loved. So these two work together. CRT and and, uh, and intersectionality breaks the person down and makes them vulnerable. And queer theory comes along. And all of these gender things that we read about, we don't quite understand. And it gives hope there's hope for you. I know you feel beat down right now, but there is hope. And, and all, all it needs to happen is maybe you need to change your gender, or maybe you just need to say that you, you think you're gay or you're gender fluid or you're, or something else, uh, these terms that I don't even know. And you will find acceptance and you'll find value and you'll find a platform. And you little boy, who's, who's in the third grade, you can find a sense of being that has meaning and value. It sounds crazy. It sounds disturbing. And it ought to sound disturbing. That is our world. That is what our kids are facing. That's what I read about in the news that Disney is wanting to tell us about. That's what I read about in the news that there are discussions in in various school boards across the nation. That this is what they want to teach or this is what they've already been teaching to third grade boys and others. This is the world in which we live, folks. We cannot bury our head from this. And when we read this passage, when we read God's design, it helps us understand the relationship between male and female in a way that the world cannot. God created man and God created woman the way he did on purpose. He had a particular design in mind. We talked already about the fact that man and woman are created differently. That when you look at chapter 1... It just states, male and female, he created them. But in chapter 2, we see how that plays out. We see how that relates that you have the man who's formed from the dust, and then life is breathed into him. But he's alone, and that's not good for all kinds of reasons we talked about last week. And so what does God do to meet that help? He doesn't set him aside, find some new dirt, fashion it into a woman, and breathe life into it. That's not what he did. If that were what he did, the two would be parallel. They would be in some way interchangeable. Yeah, one chronologically perhaps came first. And one chronologically perhaps came second. But they were made in the exact same fashion. They are ultimately interchangeable. But not the way God did it. The way God did it, he took the man, fashioned him, uh, took the dirt, fashioned him into a man, breathed life into him. He was a, a living being. And then he took from the man who already existed... There's not only a chronological priority of the man having been created first. But there's a relational priority that he was made from the dirt and she was made from him. Her very origin is different. It's not just that she looks different. It's not just that she has a different role. It's not just that she's she's treated differently in, in various ways. It's not just that she's the one who has the babies. She came from him. Her very origin, her very history is distinct from his. It's it's connected to him. But his history, his origin is that he was made from dirt. We were discussing this in our connect group this week week and my wife rejoiced in the fact that it's the man who's made from the dirt and not the woman. I don't I don't disagree. <laughs> but but you have a different origin story. Of the man and the woman. And, and as much as this world wants to, and as much as, um, you know, you can, the, the, the media can rewrite history and explain history in different ways to conceal inconvenient truths. And they can, you actually can't change history. You can change the history that's told and flush it down the memory hole. But you can't actually change history. And the history of man and woman are different. Intimately connected, but they are different. And the Bible will spell out in in relational terms and in functional terms and and, uh, parenting terms and all kinds of stuff, the nature of those differences between male and female. But for our purposes now, I want to see the difference in origin, where they come from. You can change physical appearance, you can inject some hormones, but you can never change the origin. You cannot change the history. Biblical marriage makes sense of and protects male and female in a way the world cannot. The world thinks the two are interchangeable. You can do what you want with them. It's like silly putty. But biblically, we have a description of what the origin actually is, and it is beautiful. That brings us to our second point, verse 24. Your marriage safeguards society. Your marriage safeguards society. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God here is the one who invents marriage. This is the first wedding ceremony. He presents the woman to the man. And we have this first union together. And as he does so, by the way, he consecrates the fact of marriage. And in our day and age, there are many who would argue against the notion of marriage and monogamy and, and it's bad. And particularly, even if they're not arguing philosophically, they're going to say that it's a waste of time or, uh, you know, so many marriages end in divorce anyway. So why even bother with that whole thing? Let's just take another route and just live together or sleep together or whatever. But God here is consecrating marriage. He is saying, this is the way he intends it to be. And, and this passage right here for believers from the very beginning has been a foundational passage for understanding marriage, for understanding what a husband is, what a wife is. From the time this was written until our day, believers have recognized this foundational element. And I think, uh, you know, I said that uh, your marriage safeguards society. Uh, Perhaps I should illustrate the, uh, uh, the opposite of that. If we look over in Leviticus, turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18. So here we have words being given to uh, the nation of Israel as they are in the wilderness and they are uh, going to enter into the land. They've been set free from uh, Egypt. They've been brought out of there, redeemed by their Lord, and they're, they're preparing to go into the land, and all of these laws are given. And you'll notice, if you look at uh, probably the heading in your Bible on chapter 18, uh, says unlawful sexual relations, and that's an uncomfortable passage to read for all kinds of reasons. But what hap- what's happening there is that God is laying out very clearly for his people what he means by sexual immorality. Very clearly for the people, because they were confused. They had lived amongst the Egyptians who practiced these things for 400 years. They needed some definitions. Well, what I want to look at is, starting in verse 24 and through the end of that chapter you have some motivation for them to obey these rules look at uh, verse 24 do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things that he's just spelled out for by all these the nations i am driving out before you have become unclean this is the kind of stuff that the the nations did those nations i'm running out before you i'm going to use you to drive out this is what their life is like this Description of all this sexual immorality? That's like reading the newspaper in their day. Okay, this is Facebook for them. This is what they do. This is what they've done. They've made themselves unclean. Verse 25. And the land became unclean. By their actions, there's a stain upon the land. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. The land vomited out It's inhabitants. There was a destruction upon these people. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean by these actions. This is the implication. As it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these uh, abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. The sexual immorality of The people who lived in the land was a huge part of what made the land vomit them out. They made the very land unclean by their practices, by their sexual behavior. And so we see destruction come upon them and we see the warning that's given here. Don't be like them lest the land vomit you out. And if you read your Old Testament, you know that eventually that's what ended up happening. And there were many, many causes for them being vomited out, but one of them was the rampant sexual immorality. The Asherah and all of that stuff. Uh, uh, Worshiping the god Moloch by sending your children through the fire. That's a version of sexual immorality. So you've got these, uh, these things that are being warned about here. Marriage has a role in sanctifying and protecting a nation. Biblical marriage and biblical sexuality are like building blocks used to construct a healthy and upright society. My dad was in Vietnam, and he was a, uh, a CB, and uh, for a while when he was there, he was, he was always building bases, and that's the kind of thing he did. Well, he was working, uh, I think he was the only American, or one of very few Americans working mostly with, with Vietnamese around him, and he needed bricks to make the building that he was making, and so they had all this, How do you make bricks, I don't really know, I've seen shows or whatever, but, but uh, what was happening was the people making the bricks needed to make more than they had time to make. And so they would put them out, and they would cut them, or however they did it. They probably had forms and different things, and they would let them dry in the sun or whatever. But they didn't have, they didn't give enough time for them to dry. And so my dad was noticing that every brick was a little twisted. It had a thumbprint in the middle. So the guy was going out before they were done. He'd grab it and he'd you take them off the drying rack or whatever. And they were every single one he was grabbing it. And it was it was there would be a thumb impression and there would be a twist. Every single brick. And so my dad's looking here and he's wanting to build a straight wall. And he's thinking, how do you build a straight wall with crooked bricks? But every single one of them is crooked. Well, he's resourceful and good at what he does, and so he figured out how to do it. But but uh, the, the the biblical marriage, the biblical portion of marriage is like a straight brick used to build a straight wall. And if you use twisted bricks, if you if you take that. That picture of what biblical marriage is supposed to be like and you misshape it some way and you try to build a straight wall, you're going to run into very great problems. And so we have this image here that a marriage is like a building block for our society. In the biblical context, a husband and a wife will normally bear children and they know they're responsible for those children. They're responsible for food and shelter and upbringing and, and spiritual training and nurture and preparing them for life. And as they do that, they're passing on their values to those children. And those children learn to value family. They re- learn respect for parents. They they learn to love Christ in a Christian home. And when they grow up, they go and get married and they do the same thing. They have children and they rear those children and they provide for and all of those things. This care there's care and there's concern for their whole well-being of this future generation. In a context where the biblical sexuality is thrown off, though, we become less concerned about what's good for any future generation and more concerned about what feels good now. The pleasure of the moment far outweighs any concern that we might have for the future of others. And so in our day and age, you pursue what you need to pursue. If you want to pursue this kind of lifestyle... Go for it. There are no restrictions on on sexual expression in our days. So, it doesn't matter what is being done to future generations. It doesn't matter what is being done to the fact that there will be no future generations if we pursue this kind of sexual immorality. It doesn't matter. And so you see the difference when there's a biblical understanding of sexuality and marriage in place lends strength to society. And when that is removed, the society begins to crumble. And that's what we see happening. And this is one reason why sexuality comes under such constant attack by the enemy. Sometimes that attack is in big ways, in in big philosophical, cultural ways, like critical race theory and and queer theory and and how those two relate. That's the big philosophical kind of attack. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I've talked about Marxism a little bit before, but critical race theory and intersectionality find their roots in Marxism. And Marxism is designed to tear down Christian culture, to tear down capitalist culture. It's designed to break down, to tear down. Now, Marx never really figured out something to substitute in its place. But he he got really good at tearing down. And, and uh, the Marxism that he promoted in the 19th century was was improved upon with the idea of cultural Marxism in the early 20th century by men like Gramsci and and others. Well, now you see it all over. You see it in critical race theory, intersectionality. It is a means that has been contrived to tear down the very basics of our culture, what it's built upon, things like biblical sexuality, biblical family. It's designed to tear those things down. It's very intentional. Sexuality is the most powerful instrument for that destruction. And that's what we see. That's why you're reading about sexuality in the news all the time. That's why you're reading about gender stuff that you never thought would ever happen. So I have a uh, just a question here as we've thought about this stuff. Have you bought into the enemy's lie that your sexuality is mainly for your enjoyment? That's part of what's behind the motivation for all of these kinds of things is sexuality is about what you enjoy. And if you don't enjoy one thing, you can try something else and you can try them all and you can try because it's about your enjoyment. We see in the biblical text that there's a, there's a greater emphasis. Yes, sexuality is a, it involves our enjoyment, but it has a purpose given by God. So we need to understand that purpose and we need to value that purpose. Of course, those are the larger culture-wide philosophical attacks. But the more common attack, and the one that every one of us will deal with, even if you never uh, turn on your TV to watch news or or read it or anything like that, is just regular, normal, day-to-day sexual temptation. It's the same thing. It's the attack by the enemy to destroy, to bring destruction to your individual life, to your family, to your church and ultimately to our nation. So the question for us today is are you are you betraying your marriage? Are you following that line? Yeah, maybe not philosophically, but by your own private practices. Are you pursuing sexual immorality and 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 poisoning your marriage and and or maybe you're maybe you're engaging in sexual immorality and and you don't have an existing marriage, but you're poisoning a future one? We need to face this temptation, the fact that it is from the enemy. There are tiny aspects of it and there are ginormous aspects of it and it is an assault on biblical sexuality which is what is presented in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It's an attack by the enemy on something that's right at the heart of who you are. Right at the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God. And so that's where he attacks. So when you're tempted to look at pornography, when you're tempted to engage in some other form of sexual immorality or impurity. That's really what's going on. It's a much larger discussion than just whether you're going to do this thing or not. This is an attack by the enemy upon the image of God in man. We need to be aware of that. Christian sexuality and marriage are safeguards and protection to our society. And finally, your marriage has unrivaled beauty. Unrivaled beauty. We look at the second half of, of verse 24 there. Second half of verse 24 there. Man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There is... There is there's beauty and value and there is nuance and, and and there's depth to that statement the one who's taken from the side of the man so man was one that was the problem was he was alone god takes the rib from the rib he fashions woman so now there are two and what happens to the two they joined back together. But now the two who joined back together into one flesh are greater than the one when he was just one body, one flesh. God has, God has multiplied and God has created something greater and more powerful and more beautiful and a, a, a better image of, uh, of God's love for us and the relationship that he has with us by that division by taking that one out and then bringing the two back together and reuniting them in something bigger and more beautiful and more powerful than just the man by himself the two become one flesh what does one flesh uh, refer to well it refers to several things uh, first of all the physical sexual union of a married couple that's that's one flesh but there's something that goes beyond that, and that's the resulting emotional and spiritual bond between the two. There's something greater than just a, a sexual union. there's a there's a there's a spiritual union, as it were, an emotional bonding together of the two that where they become one flesh, where they're each of them they they' they're they're no longer uh, fully identifiable without the other. They relate to one another, and that's a part of who they are. They have one flesh. And thirdly, the children that naturally result from that are one flesh. I look at uh, some children and I say, you are your dad's child. All the way. You can see dad in the child. And then mom walks into the room and you say, you are your mom's child. Same child. Right? Because they, they the two who look different, who are different in so many ways, with different genetics in this whole thing, have become one in the child. That's a part of what the one flesh union is about. And so there's a, there's a beautiful reunion, as it were, between the man and the woman. And this is something that is that is lost in the world. If we didn't, if we didn't think about our origin story and where we come from and the, and the two, we, we just think we're two people who happen to have different plumbing. And you can correct the plumbing. But the fact is that we are two people who are organically related, male and female, by God's design. And I won't go into it at all today, but that one flesh union, that concept of being joined back together in those aspects of, of the one flesh union, that's, that's brought up over and over again in the New Testament. To talk about um, things like marriage uh, and divorce, sexual immorality, this what seems like something that you might read past and not even think about very much becomes a huge issue it's a foundational doctrinal truth upon which the New Testament will build all kinds of ethical principles about what marriage means about what sexual immorality involves and and things like that why do you why do you think sexual immorality is so often discussed in the New Testament by one man's count this This concept of sexual immorality, that phrase actually appears in every single vice list in the New Testament. It's the only one, and it appears in everyone. Why is that? Well, it's a big deal. It's right at the the heart of uh, part of what it means for husband and wife to play their role, to uh, perform their function. Uh, Some reasons maybe why it's so often talked of is sexual morality is at the very heart of the Christian marriage. It is true biblical expression of biblical sexuality. It takes place only in a marriage between one, one man and one woman. That's the only place you see that expressed. Secondly, biblical sexual morality forms strong families that make strong churches, that make strong nations. And so if I were the enemy wanting to bring destruction, that would be a good place to attack, that thing that's right at the heart. And then thirdly, biblical marriage is also a picture of Christ's in the church. When Paul comes to that great passage about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he's, he's, he uses this relationship between a man and a woman. He even talks about the one flesh union. And he says, that's actually a picture of Christ in the church. He says, husband, love, love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And later on at the end of that passage, he talks about the two have become one flesh. And he says, and I'm telling you a secret, I'm not just talking about marriage, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so I wonder if you think about your marriage as a picture of Christ in the church. You are portraying, you are picturing to the world around you, to your children, to, to those of us in here, to everyone watching, you are picturing the relationship between Christ and the church. Do you think about your marriage that way? Wives, when you think about submitting to your husband, do you think about it in those terms? Husband, when you think about loving your wife and your relationship with her, do you think about it in those terms? But that's the picture that he uses. And think about how powerful that is. If the destruction of biblical sexuality was enough to completely implode and and ruin the nations that were in the land if their sexual abominations were enough to flush the whole society, how much value is there in building a strong church and society in our strong marriages? You see, you see a strengthening effect upon our society. Do you think about your marriage that way? Marriage isn't just about, you know, you and your wife, and as long as you keep the screaming to a minimum and your neighbors don't hear it, it's no big deal. You're picturing Christ in the church, and and you are like one of those bricks that is nice and square that can that can be a part of building a strong society, rather than a twisted brick. Our marriage is more than just our relationship with our spouse. And so we come today to the Lord's Supper, and this is the the uh, Sunday of the month where we get to celebrate in this way what Christ has done for us and. And I, I'm, I'm reminded powerfully of what Paul said there, that, that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the love Christ has for us. That's the way a husband behaves toward his wife. And why is that necessary? Well, I started off in my opening prayer, and even as we've gone through this, we've talked about our own sin. That even you and I, who are ostensibly good people, we have sin. And we've we've got big sin in some big ways, and we've got small sin in some small ways, and we've got we've got sins in the way we think that we don't even recognize as sin. We've got sin we have no idea about. And it's and it's something that that's just true of us. It's part of who we are and so Well, that that which is sinful cannot remain in God's presence. But God wasn't content to leave it there. He wasn't content to just pour out destruction and wrath upon us, though he would have been right to do so. He would have been just, and he would have been good to do so. It's good for criminals to be punished, and you and I are criminals. It would have been good. But that's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to show mercy instead. And so he sent his son. Jesus, the one whose body we celebrate, whose blood we commemorate in the next few minutes. God sent him into this world who who always thought in a biblical fashion, whose thinking was sinless, whose practice was sinless, whose intentions were sinless, was always obedient to his Father, where you and I have not been. And of course, that ended up getting him killed. He goes to the cross and he dies in the place of sinners. Not not his sin, because he didn't have any, but yours and mine. That he gave himself for us all the way to death. Paying that full penalty. Obeying on our behalf. Dying on our behalf. Why? For his bride. For you and me. To redeem us. He gave himself for us. So he poured out his very life. He took that punishment for us. And so because of that, because of what he has accomplished, everyone who has faith in Christ, everyone who looks to him for life, finds life and salvation in Christ. So that our sin that that would keep us from God has been dealt with. And the righteous requirement that we must have in order to be in God's presence has been met and given to us. And so we get to have peace with God. We get to be in his presence because of what Christ did. And so we come to this place in our service where we're going to talk about the, the body and the blood of Christ. So if you would take out your elements. It should be clear from everything I've just described that this What we're doing here, celebrating the Lord's Supper, is something that Christians do. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, those who know Christ as their Savior. And if you don't know Him as your Savior today, you can right now. If you will will see His sacrifice as not just a distant one that's somehow out there, but as a payment made for your sin. If you'll trust Him, you will have Him as your Savior. And you will find peace with God through what He's done. And so, if that's not you, if you don't know Christ yet, let, let this time go by and just reflect on what we're saying. But, but for those of us who are in Christ and have seen Him pay the penalty for our sin, this is a time of great rejoicing at what our, our groom has done for us. That Jesus gave himself for us. So before we go to the elements, I want us to take some time and I've kind of talked through our own sin and whatnot. But but it may be that you need to confess sin to the Lord right now. That you need to pause and and think about your life in, in, in contrast to the righteousness of Christ. In contrast to what he expects of you in your life. That you have sinned. And, and take time and identify that and confess it to him. And you will find forgiveness in Christ. You will find that sin covered, taken away by Jesus himself. He loves to do that. And so let's take just a, just a moment and, and spend time in, in quiet prayer before we move to the bread. Let's pray. Father, we have sinned this month. We have sinned this week. And in more ways than we know, we've sinned today. And we confess it as rebellion against you. And and we confess that we don't want to live like that. We uh, who are in Christ have changed hearts. We desire to obey you and we fail so often. And so we bring our failure, our sin to you. And we confess it as sin. And we thank you that in Jesus we have forgiveness for that sin. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for that, bearing it in his body on the tree for us. Thank you for peace with you through Jesus. Thank you for a new life in Christ. Thank you for this hope that you have placed within us. In Jesus' name. So we take the bread. Bread representing the body of Christ, the the sacrifice that he made for us, that he took upon himself the guilt for our sin. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Father, we are grateful for the body of Jesus given for us, that he sacrificed himself, that he went to that cross, that place of punishment for sin in my stead. That I might have life. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we are so grateful for the new covenant. We are so grateful for the fact that Jesus obeyed in our place and credits that obedience, that righteousness to us, and that he makes us new, a new creation so that we have a new heart. We have a new desire. We have a new relationship to you that that we become your children. We are grateful for this new covenant and all of its blessings that are ours. We rejoice in the finished work of Christ and we celebrate that even now as we as we observe the cup. Jesus said the new covenant in my blood in Jesus name. Jesus said, "Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me." Paul concludes, "For as often as you Eat this bread and drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's going to be a family up front to pray with you if you would like. They love to pray with you. And, and particularly if you have questions about what it means to know Christ, talk to them about that. They would love to help you uh, come to know Christ even this morning. Uh, we also, this is the Sunday of the month where we uh, collect for our benevolence offering. And in this this particular benevolence offering is going to be for The uh, wives of the pastors that uh, we will be ministering to in Burundi in just a few weeks. And so we're trying to uh, get together some gifts to take to them. And it takes money to do that. So the benevolence giving today will be uh, for that purpose of the pastor's wives in Burundi. There are about 30 or 40 of them. Not sure exactly. I want to conclude with uh, these words from Philemon. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit today. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.